The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. And welcome to the show. Special shout-out to my good friend Yoshiko Dart. Always thinking about you, Yoshiko, and to all of my great listeners. You know, I so much appreciate what you're all doing to help this show help quality of life for Americans with disabilities. And today I'm excited about our guest. I first heard about her from a customer that you've all heard about, CSC, and once I connected with her, I thought, this is someone we need to have on the show. So, Lisa Banks is the Executive Director of Fairfax Court Appointed Special Advocates, and Lisa, we're so excited to have you with us. Thanks so much, Joyce. It's great to be here and uh, be able to talk to your listeners today. Great. Hey, Lisa. As we get started, how about if you first tell our listeners what Fairfax, is it pronounced CASA? Either way, CASA or CASA. Okay, Fairfax CASA is, is and what you do for them. Sure. Well, as you said, Fairfax CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates, and we're a very unique nonprofit that recruits and trains citizen volunteers, people like you and me, to advocate for abused and neglected children who are brought under the court's protection. And uh, this is a nationwide organization, but every jurisdiction uh, can have its own CASA program, and every state has its own law authorizing the CASA program. So we happen to represent the county of Fairfax in Virginia, and we work at the request of the juvenile court in Fairfax to speak for the best interests of children who are really innocent victims of abuse and neglect at the hands of their parents, um, which is so sad because, of course, those are the very people who should love them and, and care for them most. So um, at Fairfax CASA, we're the largest program in the state of Virginia and also in the D.C. metropolitan area. We serve about 500 children a year with 200 volunteers. And um, it would shock you to know that um, a child needs the court protection in Fairfax County about every 34 hours. So we have a lot of children coming into our system uh, needing the help of CASA volunteers. Wow. Well, you know, before we get going here, of course, we do send out information ahead of time to our listeners uh, so that they can email us questions. And we do have a question here from Cindy in Atlanta. And the question is, <clears throat> Lisa, I read a little bit about this. I'm familiar with what you do. My question is, how are you able to deal with this and, not, and it not impact you? <laughs> That's such a great question. We spend a lot of time uh, in our office and with our volunteers talking about self-care. Um, it is a very troublesome 
uh, topic, and a lot of people don't like to talk about abuse and neglect, and I won't lie to you. Sometimes uh, we get very down in the office. In fact, just before I went on today, um, a new case was referred to us of twin babies, and one of the babies, unfortunately, had been shaken to death, and uh, we're all in the in the office in tears reading about this case, but on the other side, we do this because we know that CASA volunteers can make a difference in children's lives, and we think that one child at a time, uh, we can make it better. So uh, we press on, we hug each other, and we really, uh, just like those who are social workers and work in the human service field, we exercise a lot of self-care. Wow. I mean, that would be tough. That would be very tough. Uh, but on the other hand, what if we didn't have people like you? I right. mean, that, uh, that's what it is. It is all about is finding people that can do this. So what is the role of a volunteer? What, what is the role at CASA of a volunteer? Um, a volunteer's role is to essentially be the eyes and ears of the judges so that they can make good decisions about children's futures. Um, the, the program was started in 1977 by a juvenile judge who was making life-altering decisions for abused and neglected children, and he thought, my gosh, I don't have enough information about these children. And he conceived of this cadre of volunteers who would go out and get to know the children and sort of uh, communicate to him what the children's needs were and, and what was going on in their life. So he started a little pilot program, and it grew over the years until we have a thousand programs across the nation, um, seventy thousand volunteers serving thousands, hundreds of thousands of children every year, um, making sure that judges are well informed so they can they can make good decisions. And the CASA volunteer's job is to be an objective um, observer of the child's life and circumstances while they're under the court's care. So. What that means is that the CASA volunteer is going to see the child frequently enough so they can identify the child's needs. Um, in our program, we ask that our volunteers see the children at least twice a month. Some programs require once a month, some maybe more. Um, our volunteers also get to know biological parents, foster parents, if the children are in foster care. The CASA volunteer also goes into the schools to see if the children need accommodations and how they're doing in school. We look at report cards, talk to counselors. We also talk to children's therapists. Anyone involved in the child's life is uh, interviewed and talked to by the CASA volunteer. And the CASA volunteer gathers all of this objective information and turns it into a court report for the judge and for the attorneys of, of the other parties in the case. <clears throat> and that court report is a comprehensive snapshot of what is going on in this child's life since the last court hearing. And the ultimate uh, result is that there are recommendations at the end of the report saying, Judge, here's what I think, uh, having observed this child for the last six months, should be should be happening for this child. There's the therapy that's needed, um, you know, placement recommendations. And we're very fortunate in Fairfax County that we have eight juvenile judges who really support our program. They always say to us, hey, the first thing we look for in the file is the CASA report because we know that will tell us everything we need to know. And we track our recommendations and how the judges rule on those. And they 
uh, pretty much um, rule in favor of our recommendations more than 90% of the time, sometimes up to 95% of the time. So that makes us feel good that, you know, we really are informing the court so that they can, they can make wise decisions for children's futures. Um, okay, now here's my question. Yeah. You, I was asking you what a volunteer is. Are these people screened then to be a volunteer? Oh, indeed. <laughs> it's, it is a very tough process, uh, especially, I don't know about other programs, but we screen very carefully and very seriously. Um, we do background checks. We do fingerprinting. We do screening. Uh, potential volunteers go through several interviews. And we're looking for certain things. I mean, we're looking for people who have a certain amount of maturity that can handle the subject matter. We're looking for people who can handle the responsibility uh, and the time commitment because the big thing about being a CASA volunteer is that we ask that you stay with the case until the child is in a safe place, a safe home, and the court closes the case. That could be anywhere from six months to many, many years. And so it's not, you know, hey, I go down to the hospital and read to children once a, once a week. This is a, you know, month in, month out, uh, serious commitment to children to be that constant presence in their life. And our, our chief judge, Thomas Mann, always gives a great speech to our new volunteers, and he tells them, you are the promise keepers. These children have had so many promises broken in their life, and you are the ones who are going to stand by their side and speak up for them in court, give them a voice, and advocate for them until they're in a safe place. So we take that very seriously, and we are screening heavily for individuals who can uh, meet this this commitment. Yeah, because, you know, I, another question I have to this subject that we're talking about is how would you know that let I mean I know this is a bizarre question, but let's just say someone did not like a certain family, and so they sort of fabricated what was going on. How would you stop that from mm-hmm. happening? That's a great question. Um, the law requires the state of Virginia authorizes CASA programs, and so we're regulated and we're actually codified, which is which is great. The re- law requires us as a program to have a professional staff supervisor for every 30 volunteers on cases. So our volunteers are not just running rogue out there, you know, doing whatever we they please. So we train them heavily. Uh, they have 35 hours of training. And then they have to complete 12 hours of continuing education uh, throughout the year, each year that they're a CASA. And our supervisors are closely connected with each CASA volunteer as they work their case. So we are always in contact with the volunteer. And we, through experience, can tell when a CASA volunteer is losing their objectivity. And we also have a very close relationship with our Department of Family Services. And believe me, if we're... If our volunteer is stepping over the line, the social worker is going to call us. So we have that kind of relationship where there's lots of checks and balances, and we work very hard with our volunteers on boundaries and uh, maintaining objectivity because, frankly, um, our court report means nothing if it's not objective. If we don't have that... um, you know, going for us, and if a if a volunteer loses their objectivity, the court report means nothing. So we we do train heavily on that. And there's also the child has um, each child who's under court protection has an attorney called a guardian ad litem in our state, 
in some states, the CASA volunteer is actually called the guardian ad litem, so it gets a little confusing, but um, guardian ad litems are there to represent the child's legal interests. We as CASA volunteers are there to represent the child's best interest object, objectively, and we assist the attorney, the guardian ad litem as well. So we work in tandem, and we also work very closely, as you can imagine, with the social workers on the case. So there's a lot of checks and balances, but, you know, occasionally um, CASA volunteers do get emotionally attached and they start to see things in a certain way and, and we kind of have to, you know, bring them back to to the middle ground because our, our role is to give objective information. We're not the fact finders and we're not making the decisions. We're presenting information so the judge can make a fine decision for a child's future. Yeah, I think that is awesome. You know that you, <laughs> I mean, that you have that you have that check because you know it would be possible if you didn't do that that someone could lose being objective. It, it, definitely, if they see something is happening, Absolutely. you know that is shocking to them. Absolutely, and it's very hard, especially for children who are in foster care, because sometimes foster homes can provide things that a biological family cannot, whether it be you know toys or monetary things, and and that's not. That's not our goal. Our goal is not to, you know, provide children with things. Our our goal is to to make sure that children are in the safest, most loving environment, which we know is predominantly their biological home, if at all possible. So, um, you know, things and and making it right uh, isn't always the end result. Um, it's it's putting children in the safest home that is a biological or a relative home, if at all possible. Well, I know, and this is remarkable, that you, you've you served the needs of over 5,600 children in 23 years, approximately 500 children per year. When you say served the needs, what do you mean? What does that mean? Well, uh, as you can imagine, children who are neglected um, or physically, emotionally, or sexually abused such, suffer great trauma. And they need help reclaiming their childhood, their mental health, their physical health. And so we are there to ensure that that they get the help they need. And I think it's really important, Joyce, to understand the context nationally of what we're talking about with child abuse and neglect. Because even though I'm in Fairfax and, you know, we're serving 500 children a year, this problem is huge. There are almost 2 million cases of abuse and neglect investigated every year across the country. And that costs our nation about $124 billion. Um, last year across the nation, 1,800 children died from child abuse and neglect. And Oh, it, that is so terrible. I mean, it's, it's stunning. And um, in Virginia, we had 30 children who died last year. And uh, it will shock you that 80% of those children were under the age of 5. And that's because, oh. you know, there's not school intervention. Uh, there's not people seeing those little babies, you know, and, and recognizing the signs of abuse. So, you know, it's a big problem. And when children are abused and neglected, they have developmental delays. They have poor cognitive abilities. They lose uh, ground in school. They have language deficits, attachment disorders, all sorts of, of problems. And the CASA volunteer's job is to observe the child and what's going on. I talk to all the professionals 
and determine what is this child's needs. And um, so serving the needs means, number one, identifying the child's needs, and that's by talking to all the professionals, um, the therapists, the doctors, the teachers, <laughs> gathering all that information. And then once we identify those needs, we are uh, getting in everyone's face, making sure that the professionals and the court are aware of what the child's needs are and, and sort of facilitating um, access to these services. Now, our volunteers are not allowed to give services. You know, we're just recommending. So that's the, the social worker's job is to order services in the court. Um, the other thing we do to help the children is that we monitor the parents' court orders. If a, if a court has ordered the parents to undergo psychiatric treatment or alcohol and drug um, abuse treatment or mental health or uh, anger management, parenting classes, the CASA volunteer is charged with monitoring the parent's progress and reporting to the court on that progress. Hey, mom and dad are doing what you've asked them to do so they can have their children back, or no, mom and dad really can't get it together here. So um, we're sort of the tenacious ones um, being a pain um, to lots of people, but really fighting for those children's rights and fighting to make sure that they get put back on track um, where they should be. I mean, we had a we had a story. I love this story about one of our volunteers. She's like a, a grandma, and um, she had a little five-year-old girl who who had severe disabilities, physical disabilities, and she had been so severely neglected. None of this had been attended to, and beyond her physical disability, she was at risk of losing all her teeth, and was in a hospital. And the hospital wanted to send her home to the foster mother to then be transported to another hospital for surgery, and she was medically fragile and had tubes and all this stuff, and um, the CASA volunteer really impressed upon the hospital, you need to transport this medically fragile child in, a, in an ambulance, and um, everybody said, no, we can't, we're wringing our hands, and she prevailed, and this young girl's safety and, you know, physical uh, needs were were insured by being transported um, simply because the CASA volunteer just pressed it. And that's a small example, but, you know, we're in there uh, digging the details and making sure that these kids don't fall through the cracks. Wow. What a great thing. That <laughs> is truly a great thing. Well, with that, we're going to go to break. If you just joined us, we're talking to Lisa Banks, Executive Director Fairfax Court appointed special advocates. We'll be right back to talk to Lisa. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. We'll be back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. 
A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Hi, I'm Greg Grumberg from the TV show Heroes. One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than 3 million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters, here's Joy Spender. Welcome back to the show. We're talking to Lisa Banks, Executive Director at the Fairfax Court Appointed Special Advocates. Something that I was asking her before we go to the next question is I was asking Lisa, how do these children who have these situations that are terrible get referred to you at CASA? Um, through through many different uh, venues, uh, people can call in a uh, concern about a child or the schools can call. So, you know, if someone calls the hotline and says, I think a child's being abused, the social workers will investigate that case. If the social workers feel that court intervention and protection is necessary, they will file a petition with the court. When the court takes a case and opens it, they immediately send it to us for referral of a CASA volunteer. So, with our particular court, we're on automatic referral, meaning our judges want us to serve every single case. Um, other jurisdictions are different. Sometimes they only send foster care cases. We also serve uh, we serve foster care and we serve children who remain in the home but under protective supervision because I think those are really dicey situations. Sometimes you need that extra set of eyes on the family to make sure you know, the children are safe and things are, are going the way the court would want. So, um, you know, we ser- we try to serve the full needs of the court, although, as I was mentioning earlier, we currently have 61 children on our waiting list who do not have a CASA volunteer because we don't have enough volunteers right now. And, uh, you know, those kids are getting shortchanged, and that really breaks my heart. Do the police ever refer people to you? Sure, sure. And, of course, we're not getting the full, you know, the, the the initial referral the Child Protective Services is. But once it gets into the court system, the court sends it to us, and we, we open the case here and look for a volunteer who can serve the case. Wow. Well, I know that you helped. I read about this, a family that you helped with eight children, and you served them for almost two years. Would you mind sharing that story with our listeners? Yeah, I can. Uh, this is actually how I became involved with, with the CASA program. I had heard about the program years 
uh, prior to becoming a CASA volunteer, and I thought, gosh, they let people do that? That's such a cool idea, and I'm very passionate about children, so when my kids got to be teenagers, I thought, well, this is a good time for me to um, try this, and uh, I was trained, you know, screened and interviewed and trained as a CASA volunteer, and they asked me if I would take a case of eight siblings, and I thought, oh, my gosh, well, okay, here I go, jumping in with both feet. Um, and I do want to first say that all the children under the court's protection are ages 0 to 18, and so they're all minors, and they they need their confidentiality. So we never speak about names. We never speak about identifying uh, features of a case or of children because we want to protect their identity, especially as their lives are being turned upside down. But um, this family of eight siblings, uh, eight children, ages 11 months to uh, 16 years old, were found in a motel room with very little food, had virtually been abandoned uh, for long periods of time by both, by both parents. And um, these children ha- were severely malnutritioned. They had not had medical attention in years, if ever and had not been to school in years. In fact, the 16-year-old told me the last class she remembered being in was in sixth grade. Um, wow. And I know. And when the they were just amazing children, though, incredibly resilient um, children. When the policeman came to the door, he was looking for their father, um, the the second oldest boy, who actually had mild cerebral palsy, opened the door and looked up at the policeman and said, Are you our angel? And uh, oh. it was, uh, you how, know, that, how, old was, how old was that child? He was 15. And oh. um, he, uh, these children had been warned by their parents not to go outside, not to talk to people, or they would, you know, all be put in jail. And, you know, they had essentially been on the run for quite some time. So these children were really, we had a lot of work to do with them, um, you know, especially getting them up to speed in school. The county, Fairfax County, is amazing with its services. They really attended to the medical needs of the young man with cerebral palsy with a couple surgeries so he could run and play basketball. And the we worked hard in the schools to get educational accommodations for these children and get them up to speed. But what was most... Uh, significant to me about this case was typically when children are placed in foster care, all they want is to go home because uh, that's all they know. And these children did not. Not one of these eight children wanted to go home, and I couldn't figure it out. And I finally realized that the oldest girl had kind of been the mama. She was the one they had bonded with, and she had taken care of all these siblings. And so I determined at that point that my role was going to be in getting these children, uh, should their parents not be able to, you know, do what the court asked, I was going to have them all placed in one home together. And um, everybody told me I was crazy. But um, over the next two years, unfortunately, the parents really could not get their act together. And um, these children's, uh, the mom's and dad's parental rights were terminated. And so then we set about finding adoptive homes for these children. And I uh, was very insistent that we find a placement where all of them could be together. And uh, maybe through some divine intervention and a lot of help from foster parents and the social workers, uh, we found an arrangement for these children where two families that were related took all eight children. And those children are um, adopted today by that family and thriving in school. And um, the young man with cerebral palsy told me one of the last times I saw him, he said, I'm loving school so much, I'm going to be an architect, Miss Lisa. 
and I said, I bet you are. And it, you know, to me, um, you know, what we were able to accomplish as a team um, to help these eight children and put them on the path to a brighter future um, was just incredibly profound. And uh, that's when I knew I really wanted to be involved with this organization um, in a more permanent way as, you know, a, a, you know a, a worker bee in the office, just really making this this organization grow and be able to serve every child. So that's, that's why I'm here. Now, a question. Okay, th- those children, you found them in a hotel room mm-hmm. or, or, or a motel, whatever it was. Are you saying that it's like these parents were going from place to place and would leave them, would get a hotel room and then just leave them there? Is that what you mean? Well, I, I, it's, yes, they, the parents were kind of on the run a little bit from school systems in different jurisdictions that had, you know, cases open, child protective cases open on the children. But what would happen is, um, I think, you know, the dad had a, had a drug issue and he would sort of go off on, you know, one of his sprees and the mom would get upset and, um, you know, she would sort of take off and say, well, I'll go do my own thing. And so the children would be left, you know, for long periods of time sort of to fend for themselves. I mean, they had one box of cereal and one bowl and one spoon and no milk, no diapers. And, you know, it was a really, um, it's a situation that, that no child should ever uh, encounter. But I was, I was really um, amazed at the resiliency of these children and how they weren't bitter. You know, they just were thrilled um, to be able to enter a world where people cared about them and would help them, you know, at school. And, and you know, they were, by the time the case closed, they were really on their way, um, despite a very rocky beginning. How did they eat? Where did they get food? You know, I don't know that. We don't, we don't go back and investigate, you know, what has happened prior. And one of the tenets of being a CASA volunteer is you don't ask the children about their prior abuse because that's, you know, traumatic for them. And you really take them where you find them when the case opens and you move forward. Um, so I don't know, um, you know, all the details of what was going on for that family. But I will say, um, you know, the social workers that I worked with and, and others on the case that it was one of the worst cases uh, they had ever seen of severe neglect. Um, well, that is uh, Thank God for people like you, that's all I have to say. <laughs> Once uh, again, I would not be able to do this because just hearing that story makes me so infuriated. I know. And I know you would have to be calm and, mm-hmm. you know, logical as you go, but I say... How could you do any of this yeah. to a child? Yeah. I mean, you, it's so terrible. It, you know, when you first read the affidavit, you just want to string people up. And then as you get into these stories, you understand that, that parents have their issues, too. Many of the parents we work with have mental, and, uh, mental disabilities. Uh, they have substance abuse problems. They were probably abused as children. So the stories are not, you know, always black and white. Yes, there are some rotten horrible, evil people out there, but, um, you know, many of the stories are simply very sad, and, um, you know, it, it's just, it's never cut and dried, and, um, you know, it doesn't excuse it, but you do begin to have a little bit of empathy for the families that we see, and, of course, the children who are innocently caught up in this maelstrom of, of chaos. Um, mm-hmm. So, Well, if someone's listening right now, 
how can they become a volunteer? What would they have to do? Well, a couple things. They could, if they're not in Fairfax County, if they're in Fairfax County, call me immediately. Um, You could go to our website, which is uh, fairfaxcasa.org. If you're anywhere else in the country and you're interested in being a CASA volunteer, you can go to the National CASA website, and you can type in your zip code, and you'll find out where the uh, local program is. And, um, you know, learn about the program. At our program, you have to go to an information session. Um, you know, you, you uh, do an interview, several interviews, and you really have to think about do you have the time commitment, uh, the, the time to make the commitment to these cases. We, we, our volunteers work on average about 10 to 15 hours a month on their cases. In the beginning, it's a little more, but that's kind of how it averages out, but it's the duration of the case. So you have to be prepared to be a consistent presence in a child's life. And if you're not, but you know someone else who is right for this, you know, please encourage them. Um, we love retirees. They are great volunteers, moms who are empty nesters, people like myself, um, retired educators, retired special educators. We have so many children with um, educational disabilities that, you know, when we have retired special ed teachers, they are so knowledgeable and they can really advocate significantly for those children. So, um, you know, just learn more about it and uh, give it a go. Well, yeah, because if you've gone through abuse, you can have an emotional issue. Oh, no. You can have depression. You can have post-traumatic stress disorder, or you can have uh, cognitive delays. I mean, there's so many things that could happen here. Oh, yeah. So uh, that, that does not surprise me. That Well, even the example you gave about the young man with cerebral palsy, but that does not surprise me that you would meet a lot of people with various types of disabilities. So uh, Absolutely. And, and I do want to say two things about that. One, we, uh, we now know that children exposed to domestic violence experience a 10-point drop in their IQ, which is astounding when you compare this with exposure to lead paint, which, you know, they made such a big deal out of, and that was a five-point drop. So exposing children to chronic trauma um, reduces their IQ, and we have to really bolster those kids back up. And, um, you know, we've had many, we have a lot of CASA volunteers who have sort of, um, you know, created a niche for themselves in working with our physically and emotionally disabled children. And uh, they've done a lot of great work in um, having these children progress to where they're graduating from high school, going to college, getting jobs, you know, being productive in society. And I'm really proud about that. Yeah, that is that is so wonderful. I mean, it really is. That is just so wonderful. Um, and I hope that if you are listening in Fairfax and you are hearing this, that you would get involved. Well, Lisa, you have already accomplished so much in your life, uh, but if you had to mention what you consider as your greatest accomplishment, what would that be? <laughs> well, we never think we're accomplishing quite enough, and I know you've, uh, you, you're, you're in that boat with huge accomplishments, Joyce. Um, I mean, on a personal level, uh, raising my three children has been my greatest joy and, and pride of my life, but I think it's my passion for them that drove me to this work. And um, having been a CASA volunteer myself, I can with all my heart say that one person can make a difference in a young person's life. And, and I think that is um, a great accomplishment to know that each of us can actually 
profoundly affect another human's life for the better. So I, I, I really feel that is um, what pushes me every day to, to come to work. Yeah, no doubt about that. Well, if you had to leave a message for our listeners today, what would that message be? Um, get involved. Um, if, if children are your passion, every child is precious. You know, regardless of how they came into this world, they all have a fundamental right to be safe, to have dignity, to learn and grow in a loving home. And, you know, we can sit around and moan at these horrible stories that we hear, or we can each decide to do something, whether that's volunteering or encouraging someone else who we know would be perfect for this to volunteer, or whether we can support our local CASA organizations financially, because we are public charities. We aren't we are not paid by the county. We don't work for the government. So we raise our own funds, and um, we need support. And the National CASA organization is losing its funding from the federal government as we've lost a lot of ours from the state. So we're relying on donors and corporations and, you know, people right in our backyard to get involved. So I would say get involved, you know. These children are our future, so we need to really support them and, you know, help them so they can leave lead full lives of choices and promise. Well, I'll tell you what, Lisa. First of all, I want to commend you and thank you for what you're doing because to me, what is more precious than a child's life? And what you're doing, you are an angel. I really <laughs> I, I really mean it. What you're doing is wonderful. Thank you. And, and you know, I end uh, every segment of a show before we go to the next part with a quote from a famous civil rights leader. And to me, this is so fitting to our segment today. And that is, the time is always right to do what is right, said Martin Luther King, Jr. Beautiful. And isn't that the truth with what Lisa's talking about? So with that, we're going to go to break. But, Lisa, thank you for being with us today. I'm sure we'll have you back on the show again to hear more about what you're doing. Thank you, Joyce. I appreciate it, and I would love to come back anytime. All right. Hey, we're going to go to break, and we'll be right back. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. We'll be right back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Hi, I'm Greg Grunberg from the TV show Heroes. One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than 3 million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. Racism. Healing. Oneness of humankind. It is time to join millions of people all over the world who openly talk about racial healing. Some of us are not sure how to tread when discussing race and culture. Until now. Tune in to A Safe Place to Talk About Race with host Sharon E. Davis. Engage with experts and notables. 
have a question but are not sure how to ask it? Test it out with our show. It's a safe harbor to explore views and situations that we face every day. A Safe Place to Talk About Race airs live every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now, please welcome back the host of Disability Matters. Here's Joy Spender. Hey, welcome back to the show. And as I've mentioned to you before, AT&T is a company that is so dedicated to the employment of people with disabilities. And as a testimony to that, here they are on our radio show uh, last week, this week, and next week, talking about some of those issues that says a lot about this company. Uh, welcome to the show, John Nelson and Kevin Storr. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Joyce. Appreciate you inviting us on. Yes. Well, I think, John, let's start with you so you could tell our listeners about your position as director of HR staffing with AT&T. Absolutely. Thank you. So, Staffing at AT&T is, is quite a large opportunity. We're looking at positions from uh, general finance and accounting roles to very technical uh, networking, cloud computing roles to uh, installation maintenance roles, customer-facing call center positions, those sorts of things. So it's a complex role and opportunity, but one that's actually quite rewarding and an opportunity to uh, change somebody's life when you offer somebody a position in a, in a new career, new job at AT&T. You really see how you impact society. Wow. And it seems then like that is a very big role. And by the way, while we're talking about this, if someone is seeking employment, what do they do? Oh, the best place to find a uh, vacancy at AT&T is at www.att.jobs. Uh, we post all of our external uh, vacancies on that side and anything that they're interested in from career development to vacant positions at AT&T they could find there. Well, I did notice, John, that you were involved with the Mayor's Committee for Employment of Individuals with Disabilities, which really impressed me. Um, how is that part of AT&T's outreach to the disability community? That's a great question. Uh, AT&T supports diversity in, in all avenues of its business, and part of that group of uh, diverse candidates we seek in, for employment is the dis disabled candidate pool. And one of the things we've learned is that part of our reach to those candidates means we have, we've got to go a little bit deeper into the community. And our participation at the Dallas Mayor's Committee uh, Employability Program uh, allows us to do two things. One, it helps us identify candidates and promote uh, AT&T's opportunities. But second, it helps us uh, work with candidates and their families uh, in understanding how to apply for jobs. 
how to create a resume, how to go online with an application, how to perform an interview, uh, all those sorts of things. The DMC gives us a fantastic avenue, especially in the Dallas area, to perform those tasks. Secondly, it gives us an opportunity to be a leader in the community in and overcoming what I would call myths of uh, hiring individuals with disabilities. There are so many myths out there that uh, are very hard to overcome, and if AT&T has the ability to create um, some sort of avenue to move past those myths, then that's what we need to do. Right. Oh, well, I know that. The stigma and the myths are unbelievable. That's why I always tell people it isn't a physical barrier. No, it's the attitudinal barrier. So I'm really glad that you are working on that. Well, we also have as our guest today Kevin Storr, um, and he is a logistics analyst with AT&T. So, Kevin, what does that mean? What, what is a logistics analyst? Uh, thanks, Joyce. Um, what a logistics analyst means is I come from the operations side of the house um, as opposed to John. I've been with AT&T for about seven years, um, going all the way back to when we were actually singular. And my whole career has been within the mobility supply chain. I'm a project manager, and I've worked on various projects of differing complexity, and for the last six years, uh, my focus has been to be an integral part of a team called the Device Support Centers. And what the Device Support Centers are is we're brick-and-mortar locations that are designed to assist customers with their mobility device warranty service needs. We have 106 of these locations across all the regions of mobility footprint, and we look like a regular retail store, but our main focus isn't sales. It's... Uh, our mission simple. It's to keep customers mobile when they run into any issue with their with the warranty of their device or service. And after six years, we continue to grow in that space. Wow. Well, I wanted you to tell our listeners about project capability. I'd be happy to. Um, my project management experience definitely lent itself nicely to uh, take the reins of this program in late 2010. But in 2010, one of our corporate vice presidents heard about what Walgreens was doing in the arena of including people with disabilities into warehouse operations. They were doing it across the country at the time. Um, it was really a growing experience for them that I'm sure um, a lot of the listeners are familiar with. Uh, he took a tour of the of one of the nearby facilities with a group of people. I believe John was included as well. Um, after visiting, he really thought that AT&T should look into this as, you know, as we try to include people with disabilities into all of our operations. So from there, he reached out to my vice president, who loved the idea and the concept and immediately thought of one of our warehouses in Memphis would be a great opportunity for this. And that really started the ball rolling. Um, in October 2010, I was appointed the project manager. And as I kind of recall that uh, conversation happening, I remember hearing about the project and asking specifically to be involved because I thought it was such a great idea. Uh, we added a cross-functional team um, to support the, the project. John from staffing was definitely part of that, who's on the call. Um, HR was included. We also had to include labor relations because this is a union environment. 
and the union was awesome to work with. We had no issues throughout this entire process. We also involved key management people from the distribution center, uh, the director and a few of her uh, direct support personnel. Next step we had to do was how are we going to source the the candidates that we need? You know, we had the idea and the concept and the location, but we needed the the other part. We needed the people. So we made contact with uh, Tennessee Vocational Rehabilitation Services, and they came out quickly for a facility tour and did a feasibility study of the work environment, the location, the job structure. All actions were positive. Um, They thought we could definitely do this in and our facilities thought that it really lent itself well for varying levels of disabilities as well. Um, but they didn't have a local presence in Memphis. They're uh, headquartered in Nashville. So they partnered with uh, Memphis Goodwill Services, who have continued to collaborate with us to this day. And they came out to do job assessments and, and get an idea of how this job will really work. Um, we wanted to emulate the Walgreens model like we talked about, so pre-training was mission critical. Um, I can't say enough about the good stuff that Goodwill did for us, and they took tons of pictures of all the areas of anything a candidate would touch in the environment, from security screening in and out to the job that they would do. They took extensive pictures. As AT&T and the distribution center, we had a lot of extra equipment, so we supplied that to them to create a pre-training facility area at their facility, which is still standing today. Um, in May of last year, um, just after seven months, we successfully hired six people full-time with disabilities into our warehouse operations. Today, as I said, the pre-training facility is still up and running. If we have open slots, we have an open communication with Goodwill, and they supply candidates for us. Today we have 22 people with disabilities working in the warehouse. Six of them are full-time with the goal of increasing to higher numbers by the end of the year and 16 working as contractors that can apply for open positions once they become available. The success of this project led us to uh, position this to um, other third-party supplier companies, and I can say that today I'm working on seven of these projects that are in various levels of of uh, planning. Wow. Now, let me ask you, the people that are referred to you by Goodwill Industries, is it all disabilities or is it mainly intellectual disabilities? It's open to all disabilities, but the original group had um, intellectual disabilities, yes. The only reason I... Yeah, no, no, the sorry, only reason George. I thought that is because I, I think that's what Walgreens did at the beginning also. And that's that's very true. We use that model as as a uh, something to shoot for, a benchmark to to work towards before we created a the capability model ourselves, something that fit for AT and T. I think it's important to note that in terms of the, the physical or cognitive disabilities, we really weren't aware of what those were. We gave very strong descriptions and expectations for the job to Goodwill, and we asked Goodwill to to staff, if you will, or identify the talent for us, uh, and they aided in the training, and then and they uh, went through the training at AT&T. And so in terms of specifically what they had, you know, we weren't really part of that discussion. Well, may I say this, that these individuals 
have competitive employment is awesome because they're able to go to work and be mainstreamed into the work like everyone else. Um, and I, uh, that's the way I think it should be. So, I mean, I think that's fantastic. It is absolutely wonderful. And, and as, as Kevin mentioned, he has been a, an advocate for this program within AT&T. And, and part of our goal was to say, hey, we, we got the spur from, from Walgreens, but we really ought to be setting the tone ourselves. And, and Kevin has taken that uh, aspect and run with it as a leader of this uh, initiative and this program and has really grown it from where uh, we started in Memphis to where we are today. Yeah. And uh, I give you a lot of credit for that. What made the two of you want to do this, just from hearing what Walgreens did? Or is it also because you always wanted to hire people with disabilities, I assume? I think it's from what I've heard, and John can weigh in, but I believe it was a combination of all three of those that, you know, AT&T is definitely a leader in all of diversity, so we definitely aspire to be a diverse company. So that had its play in it. I think that once we saw Walgreens and knew it could be done, then we just immediately looked at our operations and said, you know, why can't we at least um, have the discussion about it? And we took it further from the discussion to create a pilot. And once we realized it was successful, I mean, we've just branched out to other supplier companies that work in the same operations that they have with us. Absolutely. So I think at the end of the day, I would be amiss if I didn't say that selfishly we found a pool of candidates that have skills that can work for us and perform uh, tasks with benefits greater than the task that they're just performing. Morale improvement, attrition, attendance, all those sorts of things improve when you hire individuals with disabilities in programs like this. So selfishly, there's certainly a benefit there. But, But I would tell you that as part of our diversity plan, individuals with disabilities or, or people with disabilities, PWDs, are a focus for us. And that's an untapped market, if you will. There's a lot of talent out there, and we have to go out there and find it. That's right. I tell people that all the time. I say there's a huge market of talent that has been overlooked. And uh, as I said before, you know, I'm really... Uh, very thankful that a company like AT&T of your size is making such an effort to include us, people with disabilities, because of all the years I've been doing this, um, AT&T has always been part of the discussion and highly thought of. So um, I, thank, I thank both of you for the commitment you have and what you're doing at AT&T. Thanks, Joyce. We really appreciate the opportunity to be um uh, out here online and, and promoting the program and promoting the opportunity for people with disabilities as well. Um, yeah, one more time. How about that website? One more time. Sure. Uh, all vacant positions at AT&T that are out for external viewing are, are located at www.att.jobs. Okay. Uh, well, thank you both for being with us today. Um, I'm sure that since this is being heard everywhere in the country, that people will take time to respond. Um, and again, thank you, AT&T, for what you're doing. Thanks, Joyce. Thank you, Joyce. Well, this brings it into our show, but I will look forward to talking to you again next week. This is Joyce Bender 
America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 